This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. This week's guest is Jason Stellman, author of the new book, Misfit Faith, Confessions of a Drunk Ex-Pastor, and also the co-host of the Drunk Ex- excuse me, Drunk Ex-Pastors podcast. In this conversation, Jason and I talk about his transition from being a Presbyterian minister in the PCA dom- denomination to converting to Catholicism. We also talk about his book, as well as his podcast, and how loving people is better than fighting over theological points, and also why Catholic, Episcopal, and Orthodox faith expressions are so appealing to ex-evangelicals. As always, you can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Anchor at ExvangelicalPod. You can follow me on Twitter at BRChastain, and you can also support the show via Patreon at patreon.com slash ExvangelicalPod, or by leaving a review of the show in iTunes. All right, let's get into it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me Jason Stellman. He is one half of the show uh, Drunk Ex-Pastors, as well as the author of the new book Misfit Faith, Misfit Faith, Confessions of a Drunk Ex-Pastor. Welcome to the show, Jason. Thanks, Blake. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we could talk. Um, so yeah. let's, uh, let's just... The show is usually just a, a, is really about um, sort of faith transitions, so it's a, it fits really well with your with your book and what it's about. Um, again, it's called Misfit Faith, and it's about your sort of journey from being a Presbyterian pastor to leaving that ministry and moving into Catholicism. So that's <laughs> it dovetail, dovetails really nicely. Yeah, but let's just sort of start at the beginning. Um, in your in your book, you mentioned you you grew up in Southern California, so. Uh, what was what was your sort of environment there like? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in Orange County, and um, my house wasn't really very religious. You know, we went to church a couple times a year, but that was it. Um, it wasn't anything that really was a powerful motivating factor for my family at all. Um, my mom sent my brother and me to Awana. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Awana. Um, it's kind of like Boy Scouts, um, kind of Christian Boy Scouts with like... <laughs> Less, less camping and more Bible, I guess. <laughs> um, and that's when I first made a profession of faith because I, I was basically told I was going to miss the rapture and go through the Great Tribulation alone. Oh, God. <laughs> so um, I, I prayed a prayer, and I talk about this in the intro of the book, I think. Um, yeah. Prayed a prayer, but it didn't, it didn't really take, you know, I didn't really take my faith seriously until high school when I started attending. Um, a high school that that was run by a big church called Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, and that's when I got pretty hardcore for Jesus, you know, and, and <laughs> yeah. eventually, eventually uh, went on the mission field with Calvary to Africa and then to Europe, and um, moved back to the U.S. Uh, in 2000 from the mission field, and started attending Westminster Seminary because I'd become a Calvinist a few years prior to that, which in my former church was kind of like the worst thing you could ever be, um, <laughs> except maybe Catholic, but then I, then I became that too. So, uh, so I went to seminary for, for a few years and graduated in 04, and that's when I moved up to the Seattle area 
to plants Exile Presbyterian Church. And it was in, I, I pastored Exile from 06 to 2012. Okay. But it was really the last four years of my ministry uh, at Exile from 08 to 2012. That's when I was wrestling with Catholic stuff. You know, I had come across an article about um, sola scriptura, the idea that the Bible alone is our authority from God um, for special revelation. And I was written by a Catholic guy, this article was, who had used to be a Protestant like me. And it really kind of st- it was like this little pebble that began an avalanche of. of literally every waking hour wrestling with, you know, the Pope and justification and Mary and saints and all this stuff. And I, I just wrestled and thought and, and prayed and studied. And eventually, after four years of this, not getting anywhere, I realized, you know, I think, I think I've lost this struggle and I need to step down from my ministry. So that's what I did in 2012. And then later that year is when I was received into the Catholic Church. So I'd love to unpack that a little bit. <laughs> um, because yeah, it, man. Yeah, yeah. So I'd, I'd love to just kind of dive mm-hmm. into that because I, I really want to give a lot of time to um, your journey into Catholicism and everything. Um, but a lot of your book um, is also, you know, one of the things I picked up on is that um, you actually convinced your parents to to get you to let you go to a, a Christian school, to this Calvary school, <laughs> <laughs> which to me, yeah. it, it resonated with me because like, I I um I don't know that phrase that's like some people are born to greatness some have it thrust upon them some people are born into evangelicalism <laughs> and some people you know like <laughs> and like that for me that was I I was I also like jumped in you know um and mm-hmm. I, so that sort of resonated with me that that you that you had that impulse back and when you were in high school to sort of engage with spiritual things and like the evangelical stuff was probably the loudest thing around you, right? Yeah, you know, it was um it wasn't completely like holy motivations or anything like that. Um it was basically some friends I had, some really good friends uh, um my freshman year of high school, I went to just a regular public school. Um you know, we're really close and they had they had grown up at this church, Calvary Chapel. And then I moved away with my family to about 25 miles south and started going to a different school sophomore year. And my friends from my freshman year had all started going to Calvary Chapel their sophomore year to the high school. Hmm. And, you know, I, I missed them and I didn't I didn't really know anybody at my new school. And it was I just felt like this little fish in a huge pond. And, you know, I wasn't much of a partier and Dana Hills High School where I was going my sophomore year was like such a party school. And I just never really felt like I never, I never clicked for me. Mm-hmm. And so then I, that's when I asked my parents, like, let me just, you know, let me go to Calvary Chapel High School next year. Um, I'll help pay for it, blah, blah, blah. So when I went, it was mostly to kind of um, reconnect with friends and gotcha. be a part of a, a – but then, you know, a, a couple months in, that's when it kind of took, you know, it was like – I used to just make fun of the whole thing. Like, you know, we would all just kind of make fun of, uh, the kids who were on fire for the Lord and all this stuff. And (laughs) they talk about getting in the word and all these, all these like weird Christian phrases that I, we just thought were hilarious. But then, um, you know, through osmosis or hold the Holy spirit or some combination of the two after a couple months at Calvary, I, I became one of those kids who was like super 
super on fire. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so that's kind of that's so that's kind of how I got there. It wasn't the, the most holy of motivations, but um, oh, it did have an effect on me for sure. Sure, yeah, I I, I got pulled into like a youth group because you know I I moved at the end of a freshman year, uh, you know moved states. And like the kids I knew ended up being the kids that I that I knew at a youth group, and then like you, I mean things just sort of uh, you know it's a snowball and <laughs> it gets bigger for sure. So that that definitely makes sense that 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 was the initial pull. Um, but then you yeah then you just you know you're in it all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah. Um. So so from there, um, the Calvary Chapel. I'm just sort of curious about that as an as an organization. I um, there's one in Illinois, but I don't know whether they're all related or not. Um, do they have an over? Do they have a larger organization, or is it just uh, an individual? Yeah, they of, they do. They yeah. do. I mean, they they call themselves non denominational, but they function very much like a denomination. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are certain distinctives, doctrinal distinctives, they call them, that you sort of have to hold in order to be a Calvary Chapel, um, you know, mostly focused on things like um, the pre-tribulational rapture, dispensational eschatology. They're very, they're, they're charismatic, but very conservatively charismatic, you know, okay. and so yeah. they're not, they would look at like the Vineyard, for example, which grew out of Calvary Chapel in, in the 80s. Um, they would look at the Vineyard as like kind of going too far with the gifts of the Spirit. Um, you know, but but be something like being a Calvinist is pretty much... Um, you know, a theological expletive, um, <laughs> sure. and and so is so is denying the pre-trib rapture. You know, um, and so when I when I accepted Calvin into my heart, and then became amillennial. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Skype is being Skype. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, so so you said that you know you accepted John Calvin into your heart, <laughs> and uh, and became amillennial, and that was heresy in that group. So yeah, that's yeah. that's basically the worst thing you could do, you know. And I did it, so yeah. that that's what happened. Yeah, and um, what was what was your your mission experience like? Yeah, well, I went. It was right after um, graduating high school. Um, I went with two of my friends, the, the very, the very two guys who got me to go to Calvary in the first place. Um, the three of us went to Uganda and worked with an organization over there for about eight months. And I mean, that was a, just a mind blowing experience to be an 18 year old kid, you oh, know, I'm kind sure. of living, living with your two friends in this little village outside of this African city. Um, you know, no, this is, this is back in the day too. So this is before there even was internet, but I mean, we didn't even have a working phone. The power would go out. Um, you know, it was just, you know, it was the total culture shock, but so formative. Um, and then even more formative was, you know, um, in a few years after that is when I moved to Budapest, Hungary, um, to be, um, to help out with a new Calvary Chapel that we were planting in Budapest. Hmm. And I lived there for six years and that was, um, you know, just a, an, again, a massive culture shock. Um, not as massive as being in Africa, but it was more formative even because I was kind of figuring out who I was. And, you know, this is when I even first started thinking about Catholicism. I share about this in the intro of the book. Um, just being in a, in a country with just cathedrals and, and, 
you know, these beautiful churches and gargoyles and, mm-hmm. you know, wrought iron everywhere. And it was just, it's all just so, you know, it's just all so medieval and so Catholic and so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, so my very first flirtations with Catholic ideas came from um, reading guys like Peter Kreeft, uh and even C.S. Lewis living in Europe uh, as a young, you know, early 20s guy, you know, figuring stuff out. You know, it was really powerful to recognize that, um, you know, Christianity is bigger than Southern California megachurch evangelicalism. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's, it's, it's so unfortunate that so many people I know from my Calvary days still haven't figured that out. Right. Um, and, you know, my advice to them is like, hop on a plane and go somewhere, you know, because <laughs> you'll realize pretty quick that, you know, the world that you inhabit is, is just a little tiny bubble and there's so much more out there to learn and experience. Yeah. That's actually, you mentioned that passage and it was actually one that I jotted down before our conversation because I really liked it about, mm. about it. You say to, to Catholics or people with a Catholic influence, God is very real. He has a more than a formula or a systematic the- theology. He has reality, substance, and texture. And I, I really love that, that, that thought um, because that, that definitely sort of rings true. I became an Anglophobe in, <laughs> in college <laughs> and, and so I took it. I, I took a short trip over to England with like a, a, a couple of weeks with a history class. And the same sort of thing about just the age of things definitely stood out when you go somewhere in Europe because it's, you know, the oldest thing around here is like 300, 200, 300 years old um, and not much else. But, but there it stretches back a millennium. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then especially Southern California because that place is newer – then, you know, I mean, you don't have on the East Coast, you know, you've got some some history in the U.S., but mm-hmm. in Southern California, it's like, no, the oldest thing we have is that Bed Bath & Beyond. It's been there since like <laughs> 2003, you know, and it's like, that's it, um, yeah. you know. So, yeah, that passage you quoted that I actually that was from my journal. I wrote that like in, uh, I don't know, 1995 or something. And as I was writing the book, I was I was um, you know dusting off my old journals from from Hungary and found that passage about you know really feeling this ancient connection w- with things um, by being exposed to just old stuff you know yeah. and old old traditions and old beliefs. Um, I, I love that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Give me that So just sort of like walking through your story a little bit more too. Then you, then you is is does college fit in there somewhere too? Where you're, um, and is it a Christian Christian college or anything like that? Yeah. So I immediately on upon graduating high school, I went to Africa. At the okay. time, it was like you know the rapture is going to happen in probably New Year's Eve, nineteen ninety two into nineteen ninety three is when the rapture is going to happen. So why would I waste time learning a bunch of things? Um, so, um, you know, so, um, I didn't, I, and in Calvary, it was sort of, 
for someone like me, um, college was sort of dissuaded because people knew I was called to ministry and it's a big waste of time to go um, learn a bunch of earthly, worldly, secular stuff. Um, it wasn't until I moved back from the mission field in 2000 and wanted to go to seminary that I needed to get some undergrad credits under my belt, um, which I did in the just the easiest way possible, you know, because, uh, you know, the seminary I went to, Westminster, the state allows them to accept students without a BA if they've got a significant amount of ministry experience and there's like a formula for it. this many years of ministry experience means you just need this many credits. So I took a year or two of undergrad only uh, before I went to seminary. Gotcha. And then from there you went into um, Presbyterian and was it PCUSA or was it a different, like a, I, I'm, I'm, that's the only one I can like identify and rattle off in my head is PCUSA. So. Yeah, it wasn't, no, it was PCA, which is Presbyterian Church in America. They um, they broke off from the mainline church in the 70s um, and wanted to be a more conservative expression of uh, Presbyterian theology. So it's um, among the um, conservative Presbyterians out there. The PCA is by far the biggest. Okay. Um, but it, but it's still smaller than the than the mainline. Okay. Okay. And then you you th- you then. Was your first ministry moving and starting this church? Once you, yeah, as a Presbyterian, yeah. So, okay, um, I graduated seminary in '04 and then moved up to the um, Pacific Northwest to plant Exile Presbyterian Church, um, and that was, you know, I mean, I, I had planned to just do that for my whole life. You know, like I did not have any you know, any misgivings, any hesitation. It was like, no, no, this is what I want to do. I'm just going to eventually be this like 85 year old dude pastoring this church, trying to be faithful. Um, you know, cause I didn't have any, anything, there was nothing about it that made me discontent or restless. It was just that I couldn't shake these Catholic questions. And that's the only reason I stepped down and it was very reluctant. It was very much a hard fought battle that I lost. Um, but I, I'm the kind of person who just can't, do something for a paycheck or, or, you know, say things that I don't think are true just because I don't want to have to face the unknown. Um, you know, so I, that's why I stepped down, but, but yeah, exile Presbyterian was what I, all I really wanted to do for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. It just didn't work out that way. Yeah. So what was it? I mean, what, what was it like being, I mean, you're, you're a pastor, so you are essentially a, professional representation of something that most people consider personal. Uh, you know, it's their faith. It's, it's, I mean, they may want to share it a lot, especially in evangelicalism. It's something you're supposed to share, but, um, being, being a pastor and going through this intense faith shift and having to be public about it. What, 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 what was that like? I mean, that's just such an open question. But I'm just really curious as to, because a lot of people that I talk to aren't, I mean, I've, I've talked to a few pastors as part of the show, but a lot of them are the people that are in the, in the pews. So what was that like going through such a monumental and, and, and significant shift um, in public and in a position of leadership? Well, I mean, it's really isolating. Um, I think it's probably isolating as a pastor anyway, just because... You, if you're having significant questions about 
the beliefs you're supposed to hold, it's not easy to voice them, you know, because um, you're supposed to be the strong one for your congregation. And even when it comes to your fellow ministers, it's, you know, I was kind of known for being the hardcore uh, old school Presbyterian guy, you know. Um, you know, so it, it, when I started having these doubts, and the doubts I was having were about the very fundamental tenets of the Reformation, you know, um, Scripture alone and grace alone. Um, those are the two formulas that really set us apart from the Catholics and, and justify our whole reason for having a Reformation and existing in the first place. And so to be questioning those things isn't the, exactly the kind of thing you could admit to. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I mean, I would do everything from um, create a f- I, I, I created a fake blog and, or a, a, a fake blog account so I could um, try to dialogue with people I knew, um, but as someone else, you know, mm-hmm. um, I, I, you know, it, and I read a lot, but I, you know, I, I had very few people that I could really bounce these things off of. Um, what I eventually did was uh, ask my, when I finally told my, my elders that I was struggling with these things, they let me take a three-month sabbatical to sort of travel and seek out other Presbyterian and Reformed theologians that I could really sit down with and who could talk me off the ledge, you know? Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard as a pastor because if you're, if you're questioning things, you don't really have a safe place or context in which to wrestle mm-hmm. because you're, you're, you've got this, you've got this image and this aura that you're supposed to maintain. And, you know, if, if our pastor is doubting this stuff, then, then, you know, then what do we do with that? And, and so it's really, it was really hard. It was really, really hard. Hmm. I'd love to hear a little bit more about what you mentioned as far as the, the things that are at the heart of the Reformation and the things that you felt you could reconcile yourself to Catholicism. Um, because I think that's such a, I mean, that's central to your journey, to your story. Um, and so if you could tease that out a little bit, um, like what, uh, you mentioned some of the, some of the, uh, authors and things you were reading, um, but were there other aspects of Catholicism that began to draw you towards the Catholic Church? Yeah, you know, it started. Um, I mean, it started pretty, pretty typically, um, pretty academically. You know, mm-hmm. um, sola scriptura. What's the relationship between the Bible and the Church and authority and wrestling through those issues? You know, um, and then that led to. Um, the heart of the matter, which for me as a good Presbyterian is the gospel. You know, the whole thing is the gospel. So even when I became convinced that um, apostolic succession, for example, uh, is true, this idea that um, the bishops today are the successors of the apostles by means of the laying on of hands and the Bishop of Rome, uh, Pope Francis, or at the time Benedict, is the successor of St. Peter and all this. Even when I became convinced of that stuff academically, like, yeah, it's an a-, a historical fact that this is true, it didn't carry that much weight because, well, you guys don't know the gospel. Catholic people, the Catholic Church is wrong about the basic question of what must I do to be saved. But since I've been, you know, kind of thrown off balance by the Catholic view of, you know, Scripture and stuff— Maybe I should give them a chance to tell me what they say about the gospel. 
you know, because up until that point, largely you learn about your enemies by your friends telling you what your enemies say. So you read a bunch of Presbyterians telling you what the Catholic Church says about this or that mm-hmm. or the other thing. And it's not really charitable because you're not letting them tell you. You're basically listening to someone who hates what they say tell you what they say rather than let, letting them tell you. You know, so I um, started to you know read about grace and justification and imputation and all these you know all these concepts that you know surround how we become saved, and that really had a profound effect because. It occurred to me that the basic Catholic understanding of the gospel um, was was much more consistent with what I would find in the New Testament. You know, um, in fact, it got to the point where I started to think, "Geez, if if the guys who wrote the New Testament were operating with a kind of Protestant set of assumptions, they wouldn't have written the things they wrote." Um, but if they were operating from a basic set of Catholic presuppositions, then this is exactly the kind of thing you'd expect them to say. Hmm. Um, but then there were other, I mean, there were other things too, you know, I've always been very, um, much a proponent of the goodness of creation, the goodness of earth, the goodness of the world. Um, and I've always really, even as an evangelical fought against this idea that we're supposed to be, you know, uh, threatened by the world or threatened by secular music or, or movies, and that we need to have Christian versions of every secular thing so that we can protect ourselves from, you know, uh, being lied to and be, being tempted and all this. I've always, I've always, you know, had a hard time with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, you know, really understanding the Catholic um, emphasis on both the Trinity, but even more on the incarnation of the Son, and what that means for humanity, that, that Christ, uh, according to the Orthodox way of looking at things, um, that the, the, the Son assumed the human nature, right, and, and took on humanity, and lived in it, died in it, rose in it, ascended with it into heaven, and has now glorified humanity— um, as the God man to this very day and forever, you know, that, that all has massive implications for how we look at the world and how we understand our place in the world. Um, and I tease this out pretty significantly in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, but that was a big draw too, because it was, it was as though, um, these Catholic emphases were justifying knee jerk positions that I already held, but didn't really know why. And so it, it it made me understand, like, oh, of course, that's be, it's because of Jesus. That's why I'm not supposed to be ashamed of my own weakness and ashamed of my own flesh and ashamed of my own humanity. It's because of what Jesus did. And I knew this all as a Presbyterian, like academically, but it didn't function for me in a powerful way. You know, a lot of these Trinity and deity of Christ and all this stuff, a lot of that was just stuff I would use as ammunition against Mormons if they knocked on my door. Yeah. Um, you know, but it, but it didn't function for me on a practical level at all until I started really, a, you know, reading enough Catholics to understand that, you know, especially G.K. Chesterton, that, wow, like this incarnation stuff is like the air you breathe. Like this is in the water supply and it is uh, operative behind everything else. Once I started to really get that, um, it really resonated with me on a, on a personal level. Mm. 
Yeah, and you, uh, that's that um, that aspect of your book is something, and that's something that's a through line as far as the the incarnation. And you um, you spent you have one chapter that talks about how grace perfects nature. Um, I believe it's the chapter matter matters, um, and mm-hmm. it, then that carries all the way throughout. And um, that was something that I that I really liked about your book is that that you. Um, really sort of tear down that that false dichotomy between the flesh and the spirit um because because as you as you say in the book you you talk about how and just as you said now how how god became man and he lived a human life and and all of that and that has the huge implications um but i that is something that somehow gets lost in in evangelicalism um in a really weird sort of way <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, in evangelicalism, largely, uh, at least my experience of it, I can speak to that. Um, you know, you are supposed to be suspicious of anything secular yeah, because they're operating from this, this place of antithesis, you know, this place of, um, heaven versus earth, um, you know, uh, faith versus, versus reason or, uh, you know, the secular versus the sacred and all these, all these kinds of ideas. And so that's why you have contemporary Christian music. That's why you have Christian radio stations and Christian bookstores, because we need to offer people a baptized version of every worldly thing they want in order to protect them from what will happen if they just listen to the radio. Um, and it, like every error, it's a Christological error. You know, it is a mistake about the the way heaven and earth intersect. It, it's a mistake about the relationship of divinity to humanity. And where do you go in order to correct a mistaken way of thinking about the intersection of heaven and earth? You go to Jesus. You go to the place where um, literally, ontologically, in one person, humanity and divinity are together uh, in, in this in this union, in this hypostatic union of the two natures in the one person of Christ. Um, so for me, it became very, uh, you know, it ceased to be academic and it became incredibly practical. Um, but yeah, you're right. It, it, in my evangelical, you know, experience, um, you, you just can't trust the flesh. You just can't trust the world. You can't trust earth. You can't trust the material things. And it's almost as though Jesus didn't rise in the body. It all, it's almost as though Jesus rose as a phantom and the age to come is going to be this disembodied, ethereal state where we float around, all of which is very Gnostic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's no better cure for Gnosticism than the Catholic Church and the emphasis on the coming in the flesh of the Son. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I haven't I've – I've started attending Episcopal churches, which has a, a lot of similarities to Catholicism. Um, mm-hmm. And that's very new. Um, but but that is a huge emphasis. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, right. It's, it's hard to it's hard to miss when it's when it's um, when it's there every every single service. So I do want to turn a little bit more uh, specifically to the book. One thing that, that that screamed out at me is that that at one point 
um, it seemed that, that this book contract came in the middle of your sort of this major uh, shift and that you, you didn't even really want to go through with it because of that. And then you sort of turned the book into a project of, of exploring your own misfit faith, which I thought was very honest and very open for an author to say. Yeah, you know, because um, it's funny. I, I experienced this doctrinal theological shift, right? Um, and it was as a, a pastor. So it all, you know, and, and a pastor who had, you know, I've, I'd already published before and I had a popular blog. And, you know, so it, this the shift I had, you know, from Protestantism into the Catholic Church was very public. Um and I guess I just assumed that I would be a Catholic version of my old Protestant self. You know, I just assumed that, well, I'm not going to be a priest, but I'll, you know, I'll be a Catholic apologist guy and run around and try to convince everybody that Catholicism is true and <laughs> defend what I did and all this. And I just, you know, I, I just assumed this. And I remember I went to out to Steubenville, Ohio, to speak at Franciscan University's big conference they have with Scott Hahn. Uh, and I spoke, and there, you know, a couple thousand people there, and it went really great. And I was telling my priest about it when I got back, because he was kind of my spiritual advisor. You know, we'd meet every week, and he asked me, "Do you want to um, be this guy? Like, is this what you want?" And I was like, well, yeah, you know, I guess, you know, and I'm hemming and hawing. And he, he just said, you know, I just want to know if this is what you want. And it occurred to me that I hadn't really asked myself that question. Do I want to go straight back into some form of spokesmanship for a new team? And it occurred to me that, no, I don't want to <laughs> actually <laughs> this, you know, it's really, there's a lot of pressure and it's really, uh, you know, there's a lot of drawbacks to that, and I, I never even thought about it. But, you know, I kind of took myself out of that world and withdrew from that world, and I shut down my old blog and stopped speaking. And um, But I was in the middle of writing this book, right? And this book was initially this big defense of what I did. It was a big, like, apologetic for being Catholic. And when I finished it, I hated it because it was so, like— polemical and argumentative. And I just had ceased to be that person because I found that once I stepped away from official ministry, all of my desire for debate and, and my bloodlust for argumentation and, you know, uh, arguing from the Bible about this or that thing, all of that just kind of disappeared. You know, it just, it just left. And I didn't care anymore if people believed me or agreed with me or liked what I was saying. It was it was just the weirdest thing. So this doctrinal theological shift gave way to this massive existential shift, um, which was even bigger, um, at least on the inside. And, you know, from my perspective, it was even mm -hmm. bigger. Yeah. Um, this this desire to just um, love my neighbor and find the good in what my opponent is saying and find common ground rather than trying to build a wall. I want to try to build a bridge. And all of this, of course, is stemming from the incarnation of Christ, because, um, you know, what more could God have done to find common ground with humanity than assume human nature himself, right? Um, and so after writing this book and hating it, I asked my publisher, 
you know, I said, I don't like it. It does not reflect who I am. And it's, is there any way I could just start over? And, you know, thankfully they were <laughs> very elastic and said, yes, <laughs> That's good. um, you know, so they said, yeah, you know what, if, if you don't like it, then start over. And, and so I did. And that's what misfit faith, uh, was the result of was that kind of writing one thing, realizing, you know, this is not, this doesn't smack of humility. This doesn't smack of, you know, uh, Christ at all. And them letting me kind of back out and start from scratch. And, you know, that's where misfit faith came from. Yeah. And I, I think that, that honesty and that vulnerability, um, does come out in the book very clearly, you know, that you had, that this was something that um, that 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 you were that you went through a, a lot to get to this point, um, and you you fought through a, a number of things, and um, and so that that is very reflective in the book. Um, one of these one of the lines that that's that stuck out to me was in the chapter where you are really talking about finding common ground instead of fighting, and you say you actually wrote, "I no longer feel the feed, feel the need to fight." Um, and that, uh, that is it's such an interesting thing if, if you've gone through it yourself or gone through something similar where you, you just l- begin to let your guard down. <laughs> um, and that you actually, it actually is the thing that allows you to, like you said, love your neighbor in a more meaningful way when you're not trying to evangelize all the freaking time. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, um, and there's a section in there somewhere where uh, it's called ironic and ironic humility, and and it it stems from this audacious stance that the church takes. You know, um, if you talk to a Methodist, the Methodist will say, "Well, we're the we're, we're our denomination is called the United Methodists, and we're different from the uh, the Presbyterians and the Baptists because of this this and this." Um, the Catholic Church doesn't see itself as another denomination. You know. Uh, to choose from, it sees itself as just the church that's always been here, right? Um, and that kind of audacious position um, actually ironically produces or can produce a humility on the part of the person who is a part of that church because, you know, it's a it's a weird thing to realize that if all of the other denominations disappeared, um, it wouldn't affect the Catholic Church in any way, you know. Because when I was a pre- when I was a Presbyterian, the, the position was always like, well, if the if the Catholic Church would repent over uh, the Council of Trent and repent over um, papal infallibility and and all the stuff about Mary, and if they would just then we would stop our fight and we would join them. Um, but we have no choice but to draw this line in the sand and and you know uh, be separate and protest because we're Protestant. Um, you know, so they, they sort of need a foil to justify their own ongoing existence. You know, we exist because the church got it wrong here, there, and the other place. And so our job is to stand in marked protest until they get it right. Well, when, when I became a Catholic, all of a sudden it was like, oh, well, this is just what we do and who we are. And we've always been around. We'll always be here. And we're not sort of taking our cues from our opponents. Um, in fact, our opponents are rival siblings, and we're their mother. And you know, when the church you're in has that view of itself, which on the one hand can sound incredibly 
uh, audacious and, 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 you know, ridiculous. Um, but if that is their position, it does affect the way you, you look, you feel when you look around, you know, like, um, if, if the Catholic church is their mother, mothers don't engage in sibling rivalries. Um, mothers just make sure they, the lights always on so their kids can come home if they want to. Um, in other words, mothers are going to try to referee and bring peace if, if, if the child, the children are fighting. Um, they don't, and they're not supposed to engage in that fight. They're supposed to seek to be a place of peace and safety. Right. So for me, it was like, yeah, geez, um, being a part of something like this sort of blunts the sharpness of my teeth. You know, when I just, all I used to want to do is, um, just devour people with, with how awesome my theology was. <laughs> um, and it's like, all of a sudden it was like, no, I, I, I just, I'd rather just try to love people. And um, if they want to agree with me, they can. But if they don't, it's not going to affect the way I feel about them in the least bit. And so how does that, um, that sort of more, more relaxed, um, that eventually over, over a period of time must have led to you doing your show with your friend Christian, um, which is Drunk Ex-Pastors. And I, that relaxed sort of, I mean, you the listening to your show, you are very relaxed. <laughs> um, yeah, you know, you're just and you're just uh, you're just very. The the two of you have known each other for for decades, and that's evident in your rapport. And then uh, I've I listened to an episode where you had a guest on. I think it was even I think it was someone that had been in your church as a youth. Um, and you you uh, she. I, I remember the, the line that com, that that comes to mind is I think you say when when you decided to be lesbian, you know, <laughs> or when you decided oh. to be gay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was just I mean it, you know you're poking fun at at your old self kind of um you're yeah. and all that sort of stuff, um but it it's it was sort of evidenced in in the way <laughs> you just made a joke about it. When we started drunk ex pastors, I mean it it was it was this thing we did like hey you know we we hang out every week and we've known each other for 25 years um you know we hang out every week we have a few drinks have a few laughs you know solve the world's problems talk about whatever what if we record it and put it out there you know and so one day i just showed up with a little lapel mic and a tiny mp3 recorder and that was you know episode one of Mm -hmm. drunk ex-pastors um, it wasn't even called Drunk Ex-Pastors yet. Um, a couple episodes in, Christian, my co-host, said, dude, we should call it Drunk Ex-Pastors. And I'm like, oh, I don't know, man. I don't know if I could uh, – You know, I, I already have enough people pissed off at me out there. <laughs> this is just going to make it worse. But we we decided let's just do it, you know. Um, and it was, it's been very therapeutic for me, you know, just because it is two, it, it is two guys who have known each other for a long time – who talk and have a couple drinks and and it's it's completely real it's completely authentic it's completely genuine um and for me especially more than him he's an ex pastor also but but you know he he stopped it long before I did so for me it was like geez it's been so long since I felt like I can just be me you know and just say what I think and not have to constantly uh look over my shoulder or censor myself or whatever else so doing that podcast and then writing this book, which is also completely real, um, were both very liberating because I feel like I spent a lot of time 
trying to hide my doubts or whatever else instead of just embracing the doubt, the unknowing, the ambiguity, all of that. Um, there's something very freeing about finally putting yourself in a position where you can just be yourself, just be you, just do you, say what you think. And, um, you know, and I, strangely enough, this big old community of people has gathered around this show. And, you know, we got like 60,000 people listening to us every month. Um, and people like it, it's really means something to them, you know, and they, they, uh, they can't wait till every Sunday night when the new episode drops and they listen to it immediately and talk about it through the, throughout the week. And all these people have gotten to know each other through this, you know, it's got this web of like connection that that's so, so beautiful. Um, so yeah, I mean that and misfit faith are two of the, my favorite things I've been able to do, um, since leaving the ministry. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. And I, I, I mean, I, I've really enjoyed the shows I've, I've, I've listened to and, I, <laughs> um, and I, I think overall just the, the sort of the way in which podcasts have begun to fill a void that people kind of feel. I don't know whether it's like, uh, dis, like the way I describe this show is, uh, it's for people that are religiously disaffected, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's people that, um, uh, and a lot of the show is, I mean, it's geared towards the commonalities we all have about our hangups with evangelicalism, et cetera. Um, but I mean, shows like yours, uh, and so and, and others out there are, um, I think what you, what you said about it being real, <laughs> it's like a, um, it's, it's really a sort of a judgment on church culture in general, because people don't feel like they can be even pastors, um, maybe even especially pastors. Like, yeah, I, th- I was going to say, I think it's especially pastors, but you're right. Um, NPR just did a piece on podcasting and they, they talked about us and they talked about a few of the other podcasts out there. And just like what you just said, Blake, about how, um, you know, when, I mean, even, even a radio show, a radio show is like, you know, four, nine minute segments or whatever. Um, you've got, you're live on the air. You gotta, you gotta wrap it up. You, you gotta keep to the timetable. Whereas a podcast, it, it, you just hit hit record and hit stop when you're done. And our show might be 90 minutes long. It might be two hours long. Um, it's just whenever we're done, you know. Um, and bec- we're not beholden to um, a denominational oversight board or a corporate sponsorship or anything else that that sort of limits what we can say. Um, and I think that's what makes it makes it authentic, you know, because you can just and also having a couple drinks and doing a shot at the beginning helps. Because <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, now it's like even if I wanted to try to make myself look good, I can't, you know. So it's like, <laughs> yep, this is this is this is how we sound. This is what we think, you know. Sure. Take it or leave it, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But I I I I I think that is to me and my my thing that my my positive affirmation sort of thing is, is I think everyone always benefits from being honest and with themselves, I think especially, but then also with the way that they feel comfortable representing themselves. Um, and there is something that tells people to not be who they are. And that's the most upsetting, (laughs) that's the most upsetting thing, um, about, evangelicalism and is one of the major critiques of, of that, that I kind of lobby throughout the show is you don't let people be their 
selves. I'm not swearing because my daughter's awake. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and she might be able to hear yeah. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but but anyways, but but drunk ex pastors, you you don't have that. And I, I it's also great that you from the other side, from the sort of like you feel spiritual or some people might be spiritual but don't always talk about it. You guys just talk about whatever, but then it's not off the table to talk about something that's that may have some sort of philosophical ramifications. And it's it's great to have a dueling opinion. You you have your history, Christian has his, and you bring that all to bear, which it makes for a really great show. Yeah, thanks. I mean, that's the, that's what we hear a lot is that um you know, uh people will say I I'm post-evangelical. I one time identified that way, but not anymore. Um, but you know, I, I don't like hate God or anything. And I kind of wish I still had somewhere to go or some, some group to gather with or whatever. And, um, people have found, um, drunk ex pastors to be that, that kind of, um, way of kind of nurturing that and nursing that desire as well as misfit faith, the book, you know, people have said, um, I mean, some of the Amazon reviews are mind blowing. They'll say things like I'm, I'm an atheist but I read this book in one sitting and I couldn't stop thinking about it all day. Um, you know, that's, I, I think that if there's anything to take away from all this, it's that there's no, there's more than just one way. Uh, mm-hmm. just like going back to what we were talking about earlier about, you know, the church is bigger than Southern California megachurch evangelicalism. Likewise, there's more than just one way to do this. Evangelicalism is one way that people identify with and, and appreciate for a time at least, um, but there are other ways. There are ancient ways, like you know, the Church of England or the Church of Rome or Orthodoxy. Um, there are also alternative ways, you know, to do things that um, may not look the same or smell the same or sound the same as as evangelicalism, but they're no less powerful. In many ways, they're more powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and that need for uh, some some of the things in your book really. Uh, you, you you talk in your book about the need for ritual uh, and and that is present in a lot of other places outside of evangelicalism. Evangelicalism is new. There just aren't that many rituals and nobody can freaking agree about what they're supposed to be anyways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, and I think that you can see even in, in movements like the, um, uh, emergent church movement, you know, and all that yeah. kind of thing. You, you sort of see in that a desire, sometimes I think misguided, but still a desire to tap into something older than, um, Beatlemania. You know, Um, because I mean, my church, Calvary Chapel, started during the Jesus movement of the mid 1960s. And and you you get to a point where, geez, you know, um, I kind of like candles and I kind of like incense and I kind of like stained glass and icons and all these sort of I think I think these things touch upon a sacramental instinct that we have. Um, I think man, no matter whether he's beating a drum in the darkest jungles of South America or he's a wealthy New England Episcopalian, you know, man has a desire to connect with supernatural things, but by means of natural things, right? Yeah. Um, so water, wine, um, books, smells, bells, these kinds of things, I think they, they, they sort of tap into an instinct that we have 
um, because we're human, because we're Im- embodied, embedded, enfleshed, you know, that we have no other choice but to connect with with the non-physical world by means of physical things. And that's why I think so many people, disaffected evangelicals, um, are, are turning toward um, Canterbury or Rome or Constantinople, right? Mm. Because they want something that has some texture that they can hold. I mean— even in First John, the beginning of First John, that which we have seen, that's which we which we have touched with our with our with our eyes have seen, what our hands have handled. These are the things that we proclaim to you, right? Um, it's not just theology lectures. I think people desire something they can hold on to, and I think um, much of kind of baby boomer evangelicalism, at least, um, has been so afraid of the physical world that they've swung the pendulum so far away from physical things. And I think Gen Xers and millennials are kind of going, nope, you know, time to time to swing that pendulum back a bit toward the middle. Yeah, yeah. And I, um, you mentioned First John, and I, I, it was really just I don't know serendipitous that that some of the major passages that you that you highlighted you highlighted um, in Philippians, the Philippian hymn. Um, mm-hmm. from Philippians two, and then also first John in several, in a few places, um, that, <laughs> um, that just actually, those two sections are, were the two things I, I actually learned how to read in Greek <laughs> in college. So, oh, I, yeah. yeah. I, so like one semester was first, uh, I took, I was like a Biblet minor. So I took two years of Greek. Um, so the Philippian hymn and the, what you talk about in kenosis and God emptying himself and what that means, um, and mm-hmm. for our understanding of, of him and of the incarnation and that God is love and, and, uh, and first John, and that's the only place that God has given like a f- clear definition of what he is, is that God mm-hmm. is love. Um, I, and in addition to all the things we were just talking about, about the need for physicality, um, and the need for ritual, um, it's just this, this happy coincidence for me reading your book that, that those were the resonant passages for you too, because it was those things, those passages that, that really made, um, scripture and, and even God in general, God and Christianity in general, the, the thing remain relevant to me. Um, and Mm. I, I thought it was really fascinating that, uh, that that those were the things that that you that you shared in your book too. <laughs> yeah, that's a trip, huh? Yeah, <laughs> totally crazy. Um, but I'm really happy that uh, that those were the and again just for my own personal reasons that those were the things that um, that made that resonated with you. I would love to point people towards where where they can find your where they can find your book and and if you could plug that as well as your as your as your podcast. Yeah, um, so drunkexpastors.com is the podcast. Um, we're also on Facebook. Um, if you go to drunkexpastors.com/book um, or jasonstellman.com/misfitfaith, um, you can find links to order the book anywhere fine books are sold. 
Um, most people buy them off Amazon, so you can just do a search for the book on Amazon too. Um, and then also I just point out, you know, on my website, jasonstellman.com, there's a tab for mentoring because I do um, just kind of seeing the the responses I've gotten from people about the book ha- has made me realize that, you know, maybe, maybe I ought to um, do like a six-week mentoring class that's kind of loosely based on the book. Um, that's a personal one-on-one thing with I'm taking ten clients oh, only, cool. and so yeah, so you can find stuff about that on JasonSelman.com um, as well as uh, booking me to speak. If you want me to speak, if you got a group, I'm gonna head out to Indiana to speak to a, a group of uh, fifty or so uh, Catholic businessmen and, and their significant others um, next week. Um, if if you've got a group like that and you want to have me come speak, then you can find information about that too on on my website. Cool. And uh, you guys have a Patreon too for your podcast? Is that right? Yeah, I didn't think it was, you know, good to ask ask for uh, money on your show, but um, <laughs> No, it's okay. Yeah, I, we I do, like you, to... you actually yeah, you can support us on Patreon. Um, I think it's uh, patreon.com/junkxpastors. Um, a lot of people just kind of support us like a dollar per episode or something, you know, and it's like, yeah, that's really cool. I mean, that really helps cuz we we don't make, you know, we don't make any real money doing this, but we we can cover expenses and pay our, you know, keep the lights on and all that. So that's a really cool way to support us as well. Cool, great. Well, Jason, thank you very much for for talking with me today. I really really appreciate it. Hey, it was my pleasure, Blake. Yeah.